Today on the show, always be on your guard during intercourse because you never know when you might be dragged away to the death cells. Constant vigilance. You know, my grandfather always told me that and I, it didn't make sense <laughs> until I read Dune and I was like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not, not to get too personal, but sure. how, did, how did your grandpappy pass away? Death still. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he was not vigilant. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Gom Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today on the show, we're doing it. We're talking about Children of Dune. Yes. sci-fi adaptation. <laughs> we're 20 years late to the party. But, oh my god. Oh, it's a good but party. But what a party. It, it, the <laughs> party. party is still going 20 years later. <laughs> it's the party that never quits. <laughs> they got that spice coffee on constant drip. It's <laughs> so exciting. And yeah. Just like we did with the sci-fi series for Dune, we're going to be covering each of the 3 episodes of the Sci-Fi Children of Dune miniseries as individual episodes. And this is episode 1. That's right. We've watched episode one, and the hope is that you have watched episode one as well, or you have a great memory and you remember it from 20 years ago. How could you forget? I mean, it's so memorable. <laughs> yeah, forever cemented in my brain. Yeah. But before we chat about the episode and share our thoughts about it, mm. let's make Shout Out Mapes proud and take care of some housekeeping. First and foremost, a spoiler warning. Today's conversation will contain spoilers for Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune. Yep. Because this first episode of the miniseries basically picks up by covering all of Dune Messiah and then continues on in episodes two and three into Children of Dune. Right. Luckily for you, dear listener, on this very podcast, we have read every single page of Dune, Dune Messiah, and Children of Dune. So you have no excuse to not go read those books and listen to our episodes on them. We've picked through them all. It's, it took a while, but yes, we got there. we did. As always, if you like what we do here at Gamjabar and you want to support us, the best way to support us is to become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash Gamjabar. You will get ad-free episodes. Hmm. That's pretty good. You get bloopers and bonus oh. clips. I took notes, minute by minute notes of this episode. I'm probably going to share that to our patrons. Yes. And you'll get early access to book clubs and additional episodes like this. Many of you are hearing this right now. Some of you will hear this three months from now. Indeed. That's not fun. Become a patron. <laughs> get it earlier. Support yes. us. Indeed. Make it possible to do what we do. And as always, we've got to shout out our Quisats Hatterack level patrons, Kaysaken, Matthew, good gentlemen. If there was a stone burner about to go off, rather uh -huh. than staring straight fucking into it, right, <laughs> like right. Paul, I would look at you two because I would want you two to be the last thing I ever see. Indeed. Although you two are also 
blindingly beautiful. So that's true. That's true. It's I a looked lose, at them lose either way. The next day, black contact lenses, <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't see anything. It was crazy. It's worth it. It's worth it. <laughs> it's worth, worth it. Thank you, Case. Thank you, Matthew. And thank you to our patrons and all of our listeners Indeed. for supporting the show. Indeed. Another great way to help us out here on Gamjabar is to check out our merch store on gamjabarshop.com. Hell yeah. We have apparel, we have art, we have this gorgeous little tote bag, mm-hmm. all of that and much more, all custom designed on gamjabarshop.com. So go check it out. And finally, we love to hear from you. So whatever messages you have, words of encouragement, disparaging remarks. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite jokes regarding Dune, email us. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com is the email address. It has always been the email address. It will likely always be the email address. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. And we love to hear from you. Whenever we get a message, we get all happy. And then we take like four months to respond to it. So, you know, on brand with my texting patterns as well. (laughs) I am nothing if not consistent. So let us know. And let us know specifically what you think of this miniseries. It's something that I think we both have a lot of feelings about, and you're going to hear a lot of them today, but you're not going to oh, hear yeah. all of them because there oh, just yeah. isn't time. And I think I'm also curious to hear other people's takes because sometimes I'm like, I love this, but am I biased? Because I'm awfully biased when it comes to Dune. For sure. For sure. Okay. That takes care of housekeeping. The game plan for today's episode is as follows. We are going to start by just chatting about some background info about this miniseries. What is this Children of Dune miniseries? When did it come out? Who directed it? Who's in it? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then we'll briefly chat about this first episode, followed by sharing the two things that we liked about it and the Mm -hmm. two things that we didn't like about it. Right. And we always love to end on a positive note, so we will wrap up by sharing our favorite scene from Mm -hmm. Children of Dune part one. So we'll get into all of that after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We'll see you in a minute, folks. Welcome back, everybody. Let's do it. Okay, so the background of the Children of Dune miniseries, the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries. So we talked previously about the Sci-Fi Channel's Dune miniseries, Mm -hmm. and it was shortly after the production of that wrapped that the sci-fi channel was like, more, give us more (laughs) now. And it makes sense because it was so well performing. Like it was, Dune was one of the channel's most popular programs ever broadcast at the time. It also won two Emmys, I think. It did. Was it daytime Emmys or? It was primetime. It it was real deal primetime Emmys, yep. Gosh darn, (laughs) that is a well-received thing. So it's no wonder that they were like, hey, y'all, can you do that again? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so they sent a distrans. We're not sure what kind of animal it was implanted in, but they right, right. sent a distrans to John Harrison, who had written and directed the Dune miniseries. Right. And he decided to write and adapt Messiah and Children of Dune, but he did tap Greg Yatain to direct and I love that you pointed this out. He's directed other things as well. And it looks like Castle Rock, Lost, and House of the Dragon. Is that true? Yep. The whole yep. the whole thing? or just Not the whole episode? thing. I think a few episodes from House of Dragon. Cool. But he's got a lot of TV directing credits to his name wow. and a lot of great shows as well. So 
Yeah, Greg I mean, from Saints knows what he's doing. Again, not to like talk about the episode before we talk about the episode, but it fucking shows. Yeah. It's like a very competently put together show. It's great. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And the interesting thing about this miniseries is that it actually combines Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. The first right. miniseries was basically just the first book. Yeah. This one covers books two and books three. Yeah. But even before the miniseries was out and before they even started producing this miniseries that we're talking about today, there's an interview where John Harrison, the writer, director of Dune, was saying about a potential sequel series, quote, my personal feeling is that these next two books are really one piece. Mm. They basically conclude the Atreides saga, end quote. Interesting. And it's telling because it's true. If you look at just like Dune and Dune Messiah as a pair, that's one way of like treating it. It's the tale of a messiah. But the Children of Dune adds a new dimension to that whole narrative. And yeah. John was looking at that as part of the like Dune, Dune Messiah flow. And he's saying, I see this as one piece. So it makes sense that he kind of treated them all as, as, a, as a single right. arc. Right. And we're going to talk about it today, but you can really see that in this first episode, how he mashed the two together in a pretty elegant way, actually. Yeah. Now, as far as the miniseries is concerned, a lot of the cast returned to reprise their roles from the first miniseries. So, for example, Alec Newman back as Paul Atreides, Julie Cox back as Princess Irulan, Barbara Kotatova back as Chani, et cetera, et cetera. There yeah. were some replacements. So, for example, Duncan Idaho slash Hate gets a recast, Stilgar <laughs> yeah. gets a recast, but yeah. a lot of the cast from the first miniseries did come back. You can tell it's a recast because the first lines to them is always like, and this is your name, audience. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're like, hey, Abu, producer of Gom Jamar, and people are like, I think he was recast. I think this is a new actor. <laughs> right. <laughs> so who's this white guy named Abu? <laughs> So the miniseries finally aired in 2003, and it had a generally positive reception. And much like the first miniseries, it too would go on to win an Emmy. Well, the Children of Dune miniseries would win an Emmy for outstanding visual effects. Cool. It only got one versus the two that the first one got, but still a huge yeah. achievement. Yeah. So if you wanted to watch Children of Dune, the miniseries, yeah. oh, where would you do me. it? Tell me. <laughs> I wish I had good news for you. Oh, no. I have bad news for you, as it mm -hmm. turns out. It is not available currently on any modern streaming service, which is dumb. <laughs> like, with as popular as Dune is becoming, yeah. maybe it's just a matter of time. Maybe someone will pick it up. Now, we found it for free through a library app called Hoopla. So if you have Hoopla, there's, like, requirements for having a Hoopla account, then... You can watch it there. Otherwise, you basically have the option of buying the Blu-ray DVD. Right. It's pretty great and has James McAvoy in it, which is fun. But that's an option. And you can search around. You might be able to find it out in the out in the inner sphere. The right. Inter internet sphere. Use your imagination. Use your imagination. All right. So let's hone in a little further on episode one, yeah. Leo, because that's what we are discussing today. For the most part, it is pretty faithful to the source material. So we're not going to go beat by beat through this episode because basically 
part one of this mini-series covers all of Dune Messiah. It compresses the whole book into an hour and a half-ish long episode. And it covers the main beats of the story. So yep. we've all read Dune Messiah. We know what happens. Right. It all happens in this episode as well. Right. Harrison and Utanes, like we said, do a very good job of staying faithful to this source material. And what's interesting is there's some new scenes where Children of Dune characters will overlap with the events of Dune Messiah. So we actually right. see Wencissia in this yeah. one episode. Yeah. We see a cute little kid Faradin in one scene as well and <laughs> his interactions cute. with his mother. Yeah. Absurdly cute little kid. Great <laughs> job to him. Yeah. And it's interesting that they added this because it's not like they're fudging the timeline or awkwardly bringing in Children of Dune people. Wencissia, Faradin, the Carinos, all of that was around during the Messiah timeline, yeah. right? Like, so We just didn't this, hear about it. We just yeah. didn't hear about it in the yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. And so they do a really good job of actually interweaving in the characters properly within the timeline too, which I appreciate. It also shows like a very good understanding of what is happening in the Dune universe off yeah. page, right? Yeah. Like it takes a degree of interpretation, but it also feels very accurate. And one of the broad notes I had for this program is that Wincissia sounds like Wincissia, yeah. even though all of her scenes are basically original scenes, which is hard to like write and adapt something in the voice of Frank Herbert and it be in the right tone and everything was very, very, very cool. For sure. But yes, this first episode is almost just beat for beat, Dune Messiah. There are a few notable scenes that change. The conspiracies against Paul are very simplified, which is good. I think it's, it reads so much easier. Yeah, for real. When Sissia is used as the central, I think she's like, she's like the organizing agent of the Gola plot. And obviously yeah. we yeah. know that really the, the Tleilaxu are driving the Gola initiative, but she and the Tleilaxu are hooking up to make the Gola plot happen. It's <laughs> weird turn of phrase. <laughs> there are a few scenes that are compressed and combined. Alia's overdose scene that we know from Dune Messiah was combined with Bijaz hypnotizing hate, which is like right. such an unfortunate bit of timing for him because he's like, oh my God, she's died. Oh, time to be hypnotized. Uh, right, <laughs> like, right. Oh, well. I should call 9 1. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you <yeah>. know? <laughs> and then Bijaz walks in and you're like, I'm going to, this is going to be a trip. Yeah, tough look. Some of the scenes are completely omitted, which is a little bit sad. The trial of Korba. Yeah. The uh, interrogation of Bronzo of Ix, our oh favorite boy. Yep. Uh, spicy. Didn't get that. We really don't get the prescient blindness idea at all, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is a bold. I mean, it, it's fine. It, I guess it's not super important. It's just a piece of Frank lore that I like. Like Edric's involvement in the conspiracy is not as like a shield to their conspirators. It's more just he is the guild and that's all he's doing in his involvement. Yeah. We didn't get his brutal one-on-one -on -one meeting with Paul, <laughs> which is great. And it's also great because that's when Paul is really having a good moment with Sightail as well. So I, right, right. I missed that scene. Plus, we get fucking Leto too in Paul's visions. So yeah, to the point. Yeah, I'm going to talk about this a bit later. But yeah, that was a choice as well. 
yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> it was a choice. And then quickly, we also lose the one-on-one -on -one meeting between Paul and Mohan, where she basically is trying to convince him to sleep with Alia so that they can yeah. have a pure Atreides child as like part of their bargaining chips. And right. we just don't really get that. Yeah, her role in general, pretty minimized in the miniseries. I'm glad that we got her on the Highliner getting arrested. I'm glad that we got the really incredible like Irulan and Moheim hand signal yeah. oh, communication scene. Yeah. Because it was it was just very impressively done, right? Like to act in that way and to have the hand signals going and props to the actors, props to the editing. It was incredible, you know, shown exactly as it was described in the book. It was really cool. We didn't get my favorite line from Moheim. Do you remember my favorite line from Moheim near the beginning? Near the beginning? That bitch! <laughs> that traitorous bitch! That traitorous bitch! <laughs> Spectacular. I would have loved to see that, but... Uh, yeah. yeah. Mo Moheim in general, very minimized in this. She gets captured and then spends the rest of the episode basically in jail playing with her tarot cards. I mean, page for page, that is most of Dune Messiah for her. <laughs> That's fair, yeah. yeah. She's got like two scenes not in jail, and the rest yeah. of them are in jail. True. I would say, though, overall, these changes feel pretty minor, right? They're like cool lore things or like fun one-on-one -on -one scenes that maybe add to some of the world building or some to some of the character arcs. But I would say for the most part, I was incredibly impressed with the excellent job that Harrison and Nutanes and the whole production team did with staying true to the core themes and the major beats of Messiah. Like Messiah yeah, is my yeah. favorite book in the series and to see it translated so authentically to the screen was honestly a joy for me. And that's not an easy achievement by any means. So yeah. my hats off to the production team and to Harrison and Utanes. I think they pulled it off as well as you can. I was worried because I was loving it. And I was like, yeah. oh, what if Abu hates this? And I know I it's really his like, favorite it. book. I was worried. I was like, oh, shit, what if our, our conversation is going to be so awkward if all of my notes are like, I loved this and this and this. And you're like, these are the worst choices I've ever heard. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I really, really loved it. And actually, when I was skimming through your notes, I was just like, I don't know that I have much to add to this script. Like Leo basically wrote out exactly what I think about this episode too. So I think we're very aligned which is different from how we thought about the first Dune miniseries, because yeah. I was not the biggest fan of that one. This one, for whatever reason, again, I'll talk about it later, but for whatever reason, seems much more polished and less over the top and honestly, like more faithful to the books. I know we talked about the first one being faithful, but I don't know. Now, maybe I just came into this one knowing what to expect because I had seen the first miniseries and this is very much a continuation of that. So I had no preconceived notions. I was like, okay, I know what this is going to look and sound like, but I much more positive for me this time around, I will say. Not to be too speculative, but I remember I watched a few interviews with Alec Newman in like in the last few weeks because I was just curious. Like he's such mm -hmm. an interesting actor because now he does like video game stuff. Like he's the voice of Adam Smasher in Cyberpunk 2077. Oh, no way. Which is wow. nuts. Like I'm hearing his voice in games today. Yeah. So to know that this is Paul Atreides that we're watching in this is really wild. And he said in an interview recently that Dune was the first time he led a thing as an actor. Oh, it was his okay. first time in a leading role, which is crazy to me because yeah. he is such a strong element 
of both Dune, but also this this adaptation. Right. And part of me also wonders, because I know John Harrison talked about how he pulled together people who were not known actors, and he pulled together people who he thought fit his vision really well. I wonder how much Dune was a crash course for Children of Dune. Not in not intentionally, but in practice, where they yeah. got shit yeah. wrong so that and then they it, they did it well enough to get some Emmys and then they secured a much bigger budget, which we're going to talk about. Yeah. And that allowed them to more fully inhabit a place of competence versus yeah. kind of maybe even by luck doing something that people hadn't seen before. That's a great observation because this feels more polished in every way. Yeah. than the first miniseries did. But, you know, I will say, I'm going to withhold my final judgment. There's still two more episodes to go. Plenty for me to hate on. I will withhold <laughs> my final judgment until we finish all three episodes. But this first one, maybe it's my Messiah bias. Yeah. I really loved it. And actually, that's a great segue. Let's talk about the things we loved because we want to share, each of us picked two things that we really enjoyed about this first episode. And we want to dive a little bit deeper. So, Let's talk about it. And I'll hand the baton to you first, Leo. Sure. What was your first thing that you really loved about this episode? Well, we've kind of already talked a little bit about it, but let's focus in on the fact that I think this episode does an incredible job of overlaying the timeline of Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, mm. broadly. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. I think it was a bold decision to include everything. They could have very easily gone the like safe decision of adapt Dune Messiah page by page and then do flashbacks in children of dune of like what was Winsicia doing and like do that could yeah. have very easily done that and there are a lot of writer directors who would have done that right yeah but the decision to overlay it to adapt it to make those changes is bold and i think it was done very well now i'll try to be brief i'm gonna fail but i'm gonna try <laughs> but between the new scene famous last words honestly <laughs> it's on my grave my gravestone he yeah, tried I'll to try be to brief, be brief. <laughs> And he failed. <laughs> On brand. I love it. And we love you for it, the Leo. Years, and I lived for like 300 years. I'm like, wow, <laughs> Jesus, what? And he was talking the whole time <laughs> in failing to be brief. Mm -hmm. I want to highlight the, some of the, the kind of inclusions and changes that were yep. made. And first, I do want to focus on Winsicia because I did not expect to see her. And when she came up on screen and she's there with Tychonic and then Farad in a little bit later, I was like, whoa, shit, that's so cool. And they're naturally like original to the series. These scenes don't exist in Children of Dune or Dune Messiah. But between her scolding Faradin, like talking to, even her talking to Edric, it feels so much like Winsicia. Mm -hmm. Like it felt so authentic to Winsicia as a character. I was like, I actually forgot at times that I wasn't hearing Frank's writing which is such an impressive achievement considering how distinctive Frank's voice is as an author. Yeah. Even like Shaddam's funeral, the discussion of Shaddam's funeral was fascinating. And the fact that even Shaddam's funeral was in the movie at all, right. or in uh, the adaptation at all, so was good. fantastic. Because he dies and his funeral happens somewhere. You know, we people have asked that. What's Shaddam doing? And it's, we, we're like the Dune Encyclopedia gave us a death year, but that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And this adaptation's like, no, like it happened. And they talked about it, which is really incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, if anything, if you look at Dune Messiah as just 
an encapsulated continuation of Dune, it makes sense not to have like the Carino family involved because they're not really a part of Dune Messiah other than Irulan being there, but she's there because of the events of Dune. If you look at it as part of a continuous part of the like Dune, Dune Messiah, Children of Dune timeline, it's weird that we don't get Wincisia in mm-hmm. that timeline. And so I think that was a brilliant choice. I'll also say Tychonic, I really feel like was one of the few dropped balls within right. this adaptation. Because <laughs> yeah. in the book, he's so sassy and so like, God, she's fucking crazy. And I wanted to see that in this adaptation, but it's fine. Edric also felt a little bit generic in that sense. I also loved when Sissia talking to Edric specifically, because although Edric is kind of dense and like he didn't feel exactly like Edric in this adaptation, <laughs> the idea of when Sissia Carino talking to Edric of the Spacing Guild and them hatching a genius plan together is so fucking funny to me. <laughs> Just like these two short-sighted, dense idiots being like, we've done it. We've cornered the Messiah in a game of chess. It's, yeah. like, it's so yeah. good. It's the Dumb and Dumber sequel we never wanted. <laughs> It is. It's like stepbrothers. <laughs> They're yes. like, did we just become best friends? Yeah. Chess book? Just her against his little tank. <laughs> against the glass pane. <laughs> He's like, shit, don't break that. I need that. I hope it doesn't break later in this adaptation. <laughs> so funny. Spectacular. Yeah. And then finally, yeah. I'm going to shout out the scene that we got, the added scene of Jessica on Caladan. Are you kidding mm. me with oh Gurney? God. And she's like, my son was stone burnered. I'm going back now. And Gurney was like, you can't do that because that's exactly what people want. Like that was such a good little moment. So good. And it answers the question of where the fuck is Jessica during Dune Messiah? And yeah. we're kind of told that she doesn't want part of his jihad. We get a little bit of that in Children of Dune. But yeah. the fact that she like didn't care about her son being dead by based on like what she was doing and what we saw her doing on page like i always got the impression when word came that paul went into the desert to die and she comes back and we finally see her again after dune messiah it was always like do you care that paul is in theory dead like are you mourning at all because you're like yeah this planet took my husband and my son but it always seems like not husband duke my duke and my son (laughs) right but it always felt like she was more torn up about Leto and was kind of like, eh, whatever, about her Kwisatz Haderach superpowered son. But she loves him. And when he dies at the end of Children of Dune, again, I hope you fucking read it because that's a that's a spoiler. <laughs> she does. She has a moment of like genuine grief. And when Alia, you know, all that. Yeah. And I think what this little scene achieves. Yeah. In just one line is the entire motivation for her not showing up in Messiah. Gurney's saying the elements that want to take out Paul are only going to be agitated by his holy mother suddenly showing up out of the blue. Oh, true. Brilliant, right? Like, I listened to that. I was laying in bed watching this on my iPad, not trying to wake anyone else up, and I (laughs) literally was just like, fuck yes! (laughs) Like, that's that's what we needed in the book. Like, that's that's the key element is just... Why is Jessica not coming, rushing back, especially after the stone burner event? Yeah, yeah. And the reason is very Benny Jesuit. It's very political. It's very astute. Going back could be more harmful. You need to think beyond your emotions as a mother, Jessica. Think of yourself as the mother of a messiah, a god, an emperor who has 
multiple conspiracies against him. Yeah. I loved that line so much and I loved this scene so much because it it achieved in like two minutes so much. Like a whole novel worth of wondering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Three hundred pages of like where the fuck is she? Exactly. Gurney's like, hold my beer. <laughs> I'm gonna right. explain it real quick. Right. And again, written in their voices. I yeah, I had no true. issue believing this is exactly how this conversation Mm-hmm. would have played out on the page had Frank written it. I'm a little disappointed she wasn't, as we've firmly established here on Gamja Bar, canonically on a beach drinking Mai Tais. Mai Tais, right. Yeah. I did miss the Mai Tai. That's yeah, <laughs> I feel like he really missed that in this adaptation. And I'm yeah. offended that he didn't reference a podcast joke 20 years after his show was yeah. made. Yeah. Real dropped ball, John Harrison, if that right. is your real name. I, I just don't think he was reading in between the lines enough. Like the Mai Tai is very clear. It's to there. You, you and me. It's, it's there. Clearly there. Frank might as well have written it. So Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> he nearly named the brand of like <laughs> pre made Mai Tai. He was like Cutwater. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, all of these changes I don't think they would be as important or as impactful to my watching experience if Messiah were the last book in the series. But considering yeah. Children of Dune comes after Messiah, Frank hadn't even intended for Children of Dune to be a thing when he started writing Dune and right. the beginning of Dune Messiah. So I just think it ties everything together in a way that's very authentic to the source material. And I think it's absolutely brilliant. I think it's great. So that's my sort of first pick. And what about you? What did you choose? First of all, I agree with your pick so much. Like you wrote in the script so much of what I wanted to write. And I was like, great, less work for me. <laughs> so what I chose for my first pick instead was to talk about these conspiracies a bit more. Because oh, sure. we mentioned earlier how the conspiracies from Dune Messiah mm-hmm. are greatly simplified in this adaptation. Right. And I think Normally, I'd be against that sort of thing, right? Like, I'm a sucker for, like, complicated, nuanced, blah, blah, blah. Book-to-TV adaptations always simplify, and I'm always like, ugh, that feels wrong. Here, it feels right. Mm. And, in fact, it feels like (laughs) a necessary step in the right direction when you are adapting the book to the screen. I think the episode did a stunning job, actually, of walking this, like, incredible tightrope of simplifying the conspiracies. Yeah. while also shockingly keeping most of them intact. All of the conspiracies that are in the book that play out in Dune Messiah play out here too in some form or fashion, which is incredible. Like again, hats off to Yatanes, hats off to John Harrison. I think using Wencysia as sort of the central quote-unquote villain of this episode behind what became the primary plot, which was the Gola plot, was a stroke of genius, right? It created this anchor for the viewer to understand the story. Like there are a lot of plots happening, but here's the main one. She's the bad guy. And here's the bad thing that's going to happen. Right, right. Other bad things, of course, happen. The stone burner, stealing the worm, et cetera, et cetera. But those are sort of secondary and tertiary plots to the main one. And I think focusing it down like that really helped the comprehension of this story in this episode, especially in television format. Yeah, I think in a book format, you are free to be a little more convoluted and complex. I think in television, you need the viewer to be able to follow along the whole way through. I mean, I'll add to that because he had a choice to make, right? Like, what is the central antagonistic line of Dune Messiah and Children of Dune? 
and making it the Carinos, you know, visit the Carinos this weekend at the Hollywood Hills, the Carinos. <laughs> but I think making it the Carinos is very in line with the core themes of Dune, of this old empire that has ruled for 10,000 years. And the way that it is usurped and the way that it is overthrown and this disrupting of the status quo, the golden path, all of these things. And it's very astute to be like, okay, yeah, no, the Tleilaxu are involved and the guild is involved and the Bene Gesserit is involved. But really, at the end of the day, we're talking about old status quo and how it's being broken. And naturally, Shaddam is not the end of House Carino. There are other, the Carinos, plotting and scheming. So I think you're totally right. They simplified it with an incredible appreciation of like what is actually the most important thing within this universe. Totally. It's amazing. 100%. And I think it lays the foundation for children as well, right? Because right. the Carinos are the antagonists yeah. for children. So <laughs> she's like, again, think, thinking of work. Messiah and children as the same book. If a stone burner didn't work, what else would work? Hmm. Tigers. <laughs> <laughs> the plan that cannot fail. It's simply it's, not fail. It's foolproof. <laughs> She's got two of them. I don't know if you heard this. It's not one two. tiger. She right. got two. It's, I mean, foolproof. <laughs> <laughs> the last couple of things I'll say about these conspiracies and what i liked so much about this simplification of them is it was also very clear who was behind what which i think the book is not clear about at all and is in fact extremely confusing like we've had mailbag episodes in the past where listeners will ask us yeah yeah you know why did x group do this and we have to be like well if you technically read between the lines x group didn't do that y group did it you know it's like very confusing who's working with who and again that adds to the complexity of Frank's writing. And it's part of why Messiah is so fun is because there's this spider web of conspiracies. Right. But in a TV show, especially in an hour and a half, you don't have time for that complexity. So it's very clear that the Fremen are behind the stone burner. Yeah. That the Bene Gesserit are behind Chani's pregnancy poisoning, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's very clear who's doing what. And I liked that. Much easier to follow in TV format. Yeah, the fact that we get Korba going, good, the stone burner is set. Hell yeah. Which it's like you have to find out later that he's part of the conspiracy. But you're right. Right. It makes it so much clearer as a viewer. Oh, shit. He's corrupt as fuck. Like, (laughs) hell yeah. 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 And and then his, uh, you know, his like sex slash death still scene (laughs) later is so satisfying to watch. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Uh, you know, I want to acknowledge, of course, that we lose some of the complexity and nuance that makes Messiah such a great book and that makes Frank's writing so fun. Yeah. But in this adaptation's defense, so much of that nuance is nearly impossible to translate off the page. Like it's a lot of internal thoughts and a Benny Gesserit observing minutiae that you're just like not going to do well on the screen, right? Yeah. It's just not going to look good on camera. It's either so subtle that no one is picking up on it, or it has to be so obvious that it's yeah. awkward and clunky, you know? There's really no walking the tightrope of like making that subtlety and those internal thoughts and observations that so many of the characters have make sense on screen. I mean, point in case, Villeneuve, probably the most awkward scene 
in the 2021 movie mm -hmm. is the Jessica shout out Mapes scene. Yeah, yeah, I, exactly. I think by a margin, that's like the most awkward scene because to your point, it is the most internal chapter that they tried to adapt like beat for beat. Yeah, And it's all subtle, like things happening, you know, Jessica's having nine thoughts between every sentence. Yeah. Fucking impossible to adapt. John Harrison would have just changed the scene. And maybe yeah. that's a lesson to carry into future movies that we get from this. I think so. I think so. And I think that is perhaps the most challenging part of adapting any Dune book or any Dune story <laughs> yeah. to yeah. the screen is so much of it is internal monologues and internal thoughts and observations. Getting that to translate to a camera is tough. Yeah. And there is a choice to make. And the choice can either go really well or really bad. And it's it's very tough to be like, okay, well, they tried their best and it was decent. You know, it's like, nope, <laughs> that was clunky and awkward. Yeah, or, yeah. well, they omitted it and they went a different route with it. And I think that that's two different approaches to adapting it. But I liked the approach that this episode took with some of the nuance and spider web complexity of the conspiracies in Dune Messiah. Yeah, it's sort of like, if they adapt it purely faithfully and it doesn't work, it's like it was faithful, but it didn't work. Right. If right. they change it, it's obvious that it's not then being literally faithful to every word of the book. But right. you are forced to ask yourself, nevertheless, did it work? Did I enjoy yes. it? Because yes. like gatekeepers will be like, it's not the book. And they're whatever. They're going to die on that hill regardless. But right. that question of did it work is always there regardless and deciding i'm going to make it work i think is a strong choice right totally couldn't agree more uh, except except then you get into like marvel and like and dc comics where it's like did the source material work yes and then you go but i'm gonna change it and you're like okay does what you did work mm -hmm. no <laughs> <laughs> fuck <laughs> so you had source material that was great and you made something and it's bad yeah yeah here's another two billion dollars try again two wrongs don't make a right but here's a massive paycheck yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh my god all right what about your second item that you loved about this episode so my second item is why i hated black adam <laughs> <laughs> did you see it did you watch it you know, I don't have that much time anyway in my life. And what time there is is precious. It's not going to be wasted on Black Adam. There was a really great sequence where this, like, he's basically Doctor Strange, is, like, summoning clones of himself to hold back this, like, very powerful guy. And okay. it's, like, one after another, and he's breaking them apart, and then another one. And it's really fucking cool. And all of that builds up to someone just throwing a car at him. It's like, <laughs> now! Hit him with the pickup truck! It's like... Really? <laughs> That's the, like, you've got like a mirror dimension, many P and it's, and it's like, and whammo, here's a car. And then it's like, yeah, it's so fucking dumb yeah. sometimes. Ford F-150. <laughs> you know, it's, it's someone's it. ultimate move. It's like their final ultimate move. It's the power of American engineering. <laughs> 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 We're going to destroy you with American. Yeah. God. Hell so yeah, dumb. America. America. Hell yeah, America. Turns out, hell yeah, America <laughs> was on the script and it didn't. Translate yeah. to a good movie. No, no offense if you out there in uh, I don't know TikTok land enjoyed the movie. It was fine. There were parts yeah. of it that were funny. Okay, so my second pick, my second pick about what I liked about this for this 
I really want to focus in on how well this adaptation gave space and time and presence to Chani and Irulan. And specifically because I talked about this in the first adaptation of Dune that the sci-fi channel did, John Harrison did. The right. fact that like Irulan is a much more present character, the mm -hmm. fact that like Chani had some like really great scenes. Broadly, I think John Harrison's doing a great job of like seeing the characters that Frank created in spite of sometimes their lack of presence in the book. And I'll even, this might be a hot take. I think this adaptation does a better job of representing Chani than Frank did in Dune Messiah. Ooh, yeah. Because as I was watching this, I was like, oh, fuck yeah, Chani. Hell yeah. Versus in Dune Messiah, I felt like I had to keep reading these chapters that were Chani going, Paul, please do something different. And Paul going, no, I can't. And her going, wah. And like, that's the whole fucking chapter. Yeah. And it felt so passive in the book. And yet in this adaptation, we get some real moments of her having agency and deciding to do this thing. And like, not to mention, she has some of the longest takes in the adaptation. Mm -hmm. Like there's a whole fucking sequence. The scene where about eight minutes in, Paul comes in from his like walkabout. He's like been out in the city. He comes in. She's kind of laying in asleep. He comes to her and lays down with her. It's like two and a half minutes of uncut dialogue between the two in which both of them have these great emotional beats of like, she kind of chides him, I can't sleep restfully knowing you're out in possibly in danger. And yeah. then we should go back to the siege and we should go back to the desert. I don't like it here. And you can see so many things happening between them because I think they are both stage actors. So I think they both have experience in like maintaining that attention and maintaining that like chemistry in uninterrupted bouts versus a lot of like TV and movie actors who do it for four seconds and then cut, <laughs> we're going to get a new angle or whatever. I think it couldn't be done without a good script, but I do want to shout out Barbara Kudatova, the actress who plays Chani. I think she brings a lot of life to her character in all of her scenes that I thought was really captivating and really beautiful. Yeah. And I think that the director of this adaptation and the script gave her space to do that, which I think was great. But also she was given a full fucking like investigative arc, right? Like she's like, I can't conceive. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. She yep. goes to the siege. She talks to the physician and the physician's like, yeah, you're being poisoned by an off-worlder. And then we see her confront Irulan. And right. it's like to see her go through each of those steps on her own and it yeah. not being like Paul, does this and talks to her. And then Paul does that and talks to her was great. It always felt like Paul was handling the hard conversations in the book. Even Irulan saying, I could cuckold you and him being like, fucking do it, I guess. I don't give a yeah. shit. Like whatever, whatever makes you happy, kid. Like that was Paul's moment in the book. That was Chani's moment in this adaptation. And right. for Chani to say, go ahead, as long as you don't have a kid. And Irulan being like, fuck, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. God, it was so good. And also then Irulan living is something that Chani got to decide for herself. And it was like, despite the fact that Irulan so wronged Chani and Chani knows this, the fact that Chani then had the agency to decide Irulan lives is beautiful.
and I think is true to who Chani is as a character. And it's, I like it because I like both characters and I want them to be, but neither of them in that scene where they confronted each other, neither of them felt like they were weak or passive. Both of them yeah. felt like this is what I want. Irulan's, you know, Chani's like, he doesn't love you. And, and Irulan's like, do you think you're the only one who loves him? And it's yeah. like, oh shit, this is I good. Know. This is electric. I loved it. Really, really cool. And Irulan at the same time also had some really great moments. She was kicked out of some scenes because she's not part of that like conspirator group. But that and also some of her other changes put her more in line with where she is in Children of Dune, right? Yeah. Like when we started the Children of Dune book club, we got like 15 emails that were like, what the fuck? <laughs> why is Irulan suddenly loving the kids of Paul? Like why? Right. Why is right. she not trying to kill them? Why is she not X, Y, and Z? And we had to be like, if you look between the lines, it's clear that at some point she came to love Paul genuinely and sees mothering these children as part of her legacy and takes this very seriously. And we had to like kind of defend that, which I think is is a shortcoming in Frank's writing yep. a little bit. Like if you go straight from Messiah into Children of Dune, right? And to see her declare, I love Paul, and we got scenes between them in the first miniseries, it feels so much more justified the whole timeline, which I thought was really great. And her acts, even though they're harming someone that Paul loves, are done out of desperation to cement her relationship with Paul, which is in line with how she is in Children of Dune. Yeah. But we also see things like Paul saying, are you getting all of this, Irulan? And she starts, <laughs> which is hilarious and, and brutal. brutal. But also it's like, oh yeah, she is the note taker. She's the historian. This is explicitly her as historian, which is very cool. Yeah. The love, the explicit declaration of love was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Clearly Harrison talked to people who read both books and they were like, why, what the fuck is happening? He's like, I should address that. I should address right, that. Right. Yeah. It was well done. And then even when Paul and Irulan have that scene before they all leave to the siege and she's like, is Chani okay? Or there was like a sense of remorse there. I didn't really get that in Frank's book. Like I didn't really get a sense of how she felt about what she had done to Chani or not that I can recall, at least like it wasn't memorable. Yeah. Like Irulan doesn't necessarily have anything against this random Fremen woman, other than the fact that she is between her and having a child with Paul. So getting that sense of, I did this to her, this random Fremen woman that I personally don't have anything against. Does she feel remorse about that in Frank's writings? I can't remember. In this, yeah. she definitely does. And I thought that was really beautiful. And while I think the... <laughs> The kiss, the smooch from Paul. <laughs> I'm going to talk about this later in something I mm -hmm, didn't like. Mm -hmm. And while I think that's objectively bad, she deserves some smooches. Julie Cox, I hope she gets yeah. smooches in life because it was. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Listen, yeah. if I were Alec Newman. We'll, we'll talk about. Exactly. Uh, you, you went exactly <laughs> where I was going with it. Like, we'll talk about it later. But in, in my head canon, this is like a. They had one take of this scene and Alec Newman was like, this is my shot this is to my kiss chance. Julie Cox. It wasn't in the script. I would also take that shot. It wasn't in the script. They had to go with it. John Harrison was there with the script like, what, what the what the fuck is he doing? That's not in the, that's not in the script. <laughs> we only have one take left. We're out of tape. God damn it. He's like, cut. They start kissing again. He's like, it's not in the fuck. Alec, Alec, focus. Alec, Alec. <laughs> 
Julie, I get meanwhile, it. I, Julie I, Cox. I, I understand. Julie Cox is also like, hey, this is my fucking chance to kiss Alec Newman. Yeah. He's a yeah. hottie. It goes both ways. Yeah. He's a hottie. He's a hottie. But I understand. That, that's my headcanon. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> it wasn't in the script. The two actors just wanted to kiss each other and they went went for it. And they only had one take. Can you so. imagine? <laughs> the fun fact, the trivia fact, like actually their their love making scene totally unscripted. It was just the actors <laughs> really being into each other. <laughs> anyway, so that that's my that's my second thing. It's it's the presence of Irulan and Chani, and also yeah. how their adjustments not only feel true to their characters but also makes the overall story I think more cohesive with Children of Dune in mind. Agreed, agreed, and it continues this theme from the first miniseries as well. We talked a lot in our coverage of that miniseries about how well Irulan was treated and how she was given so much agency and so much more to do Right. that was in between the lines in the book, but it's brought to center stage in the Dune miniseries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same is done here with Chani and with Irulan. I think the characters are given the respect that they're owed and it's nice to see that. Yeah, totally. So, so what's your what's your kind of second pick? for liked thing. So my pick number two for the things that I liked Julie Cox. was, yeah, yeah, that's, that's my actual pick number two, three, four, five. But what I really liked, we, again, we briefly chatted about this earlier, but it seems like a lot of the rough edges of the first miniseries have been polished over in this one. It seems like the budget went up. And that may or may not be true. I wasn't able to fact check that. But the sets, the costumes, the special effects, like everything seemed more polished than the 2000 Dune miniseries. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, I think perhaps the director change or some part of the production creative team change led to some of the hamminess and the over-the-top costumes, the silly hats, like a lot of the things that I had issues with in the first miniseries that we talked about are way, way toned down, much to my relief. Like I, I counted maybe two silly hats in this whole episode. <laughs> Just wait. It's episode two. It's all silly hats, all butterfly dresses. <laughs> no bugle, cone-headed, <laughs> spacing guild. Delicious. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> Truly delicious, not nutritious, but <laughs> all of that was toned down much to my personal relief. You know, again, that's a very subjective take. Some people might like that hamminess and the costume design and all of that. I hated it in the first miniseries. I much more appreciated the cleaner aesthetic of this episode and of this miniseries so far. You know, it's wild. I just Googled it. They had the same budget according to wow Google. but first of all none of what you've said is invalidated i think you're totally right but also i think yeah. this is to the point of them having more experience and having having feedback from the first one yeah. they watched back and they were like the right. hats were a bad choice <laughs> we should right we should tone back the hats we should bring down the hat budget we should bring down the hat budget so we can bring in a second director there we go or like a dedicated director yeah or no live butterflies on a dress <laughs> right yeah Bring that budget down. We don't need a butterfly guy on set. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they were smarter. They were more efficient and smarter with the budget, put it into things that really showed. A lot of Czech people in, still. In Just a lot of Czech Fremen <laughs> still. But... A lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That criticism still <laughs> Yeah. I do want to say, speaking of like the production in particular, mm. and we said this about the first miniseries as well, yeah. but in particular, I want to applaud how alive and bustling 
the show managed to make Arakeen feel. Yeah. Oh my God. Like yeah. at no point in the episode was it hard for me to believe that, oh yeah, this is the capital of the Imperium. Yeah. This is the hub of the known universe. Yeah. And what it particularly makes me think of is recently over on the Winds Howling podcast, Brett and I have been covering the Witcher Blood Origin series that dropped on Netflix. <laughs> and in one episode of that series, there's this like really pathetic scene where a group of lowborn citizens is supposedly rising up during a riot, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And <laughs> there's like maybe 12 people on screen. <laughs> like you can count exactly how many extras are on screen during this like hoo rah rah, you know, yeah. like their main character is yeah. giving a speech. And <laughs> and I'm like, I this is like a fucking, I, I don't know, like a... <laughs> I could open a lemonade stand and get more people in a group together. It's a it's a college thesis move. It's like a yeah, it's just a class, it, one class yeah. of students. It's really awkward. <laughs> and, and it it totally breaks the immersion of that scene. In contrast, yeah. Children of Dune here does it so well. That ritual scene that this episode literally starts off with yeah. is just like jam-packed full of people. And you're like, look at how many people are worshiping Alia. Yeah. Like it it sells that so well. There's a busy, bustling marketplace, as we know exists from the book, right in front of the key. Paul walking through it, the crowd. It's like a crowd. Yes, it's a big it's a crowd. <laughs> yeah. And again, maybe that's just like real tight camera shots and using the same 12 people over and over, <laughs> but they were smart with it. They like, were smart with it. Yeah. There was at no point any awkward camera shot where I was like, ooh, the low budget's really showing here. They could only hire, you know, 12 people for this marketplace. Right. It felt epic. It felt big. It felt bustling. Yeah. And that is actually one of my knocks against the 2021 film. Yes. Oh my and God. something that yeah. I hope that Danny and the production crew fix in future sequels is making these cities, these planets, these worlds feel more alive and not only spending time with our main cast in like giant, beautifully built empty sets. Yeah, I was trying to think just now about like how many scenes in Villeneuve's adaptation had like a big group of people. And it's like the ornithopter landing scene with the right. like the crowd. The Lisan Al Gaib. Lisan Al Gaib. Yeah. Al Gaib. And then there's the Paul with the tree waterer guy. And there's like yeah. the fence of all the people on the other side. Yes. And then there's like battle scenes. And that's kind of it. That's kind of it. And there was a there was a filmed scene that they ended up not including, which included like a bustling marketplace. But it's not in the fucking movie. And if Villeneuve right. doesn't do like a director's cut, it'll never be a part of the movie. And you're totally right. It feels like yeah. a planet that's populated by 14 people. And that's dumb because this is supposed to be now the imperial center of the universe. Right. Or even... Like, we're supposed to believe that there are people in Arakeen, and I don't believe that in Villeneuve's adaptation. Yeah, yeah. So props yeah. to the miniseries for handling that. And I think the last thing I'll say about the production is I also was grateful for the variety of sets yeah. that we got. It felt like in the first miniseries, there were basically like three main sets, Arakeen, Kaiten, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Here, like even just alone in this first episode, we got Arrakis, Kaladins, Lucis Secundus, a Guild Highliner, a Desert Siege. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. We're all over the place and the sets are diverse and look different and distinct. And you can tell where you are just by right. the building structures. All of that makes it, again, feel like the 
budget was bigger, even though I guess it wasn't. They were more efficient with that budget and put it into things that are very obvious on screen and just lead to a much more polished presentation, which I loved. Yeah, totally agreed. Because it just feels, everyone felt very distinct, which was which was cool. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, if the budget was bigger and Google lied to me, I apologize. Uh, email us, gomjabarpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Let us know and we'll yeah. uh, we'll correct in episode two. Yeah. Greg, Utains, please also tell us how to say your last name. Yes, please. tell us about the budget. Also come yeah. on the show. It'd be great to chat yeah. with you. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we've talked a lot about what we like. Let's talk now about what we did not like. Problems that we mm. had with this first episode. Yeah. Before we do, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around. It's been all positive vibes. We're going to go super negative for a second. <laughs> and we'll bring it back positive. So stick around. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back, folks. Let's now switch gears and talk about some things in this first episode that didn't quite work for us. Because when you love something, you must criticize it. That's the only way I know how to show affection. That's why it's what I tell all my family members all the time. That's why I explain my behavior. <laughs> I'm mean to you because I love you. Yeah. And if you don't understand that, it's I've got some more criticism for you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the first thing that I disliked about this episode that didn't work for me was the way that it handled Paul's abilities. Mm, His prescience, this trap of the Oracle that is such a key theme in Dune Messiah, this inevitability of events that Paul feels like he can't escape from. All of that is so core to Dune Messiah. And to the ideas that Frank is exploring through Paul's abilities. And it's part of why Messiah is one of my favorite books, because it's honestly just like so dark and so depressing. And Paul is so demoralized through (laughs) the whole thing. Yeah. Because there's just no escaping. I didn't get that sense from this miniseries, from this episode that covered Dune Messiah. I also didn't get the sense that Chani's death played such a central part in Paul's actions. Like in Messiah, we know that is like the thing driving Paul. He is doing everything he can to avoid the inevitable Chani death slash deaths that he sees in his visions. He's delaying that as long as he can. We have a sense of that in this miniseries. There are a couple of lines where even when he's talking to Irulan, he says, your actions delayed Chani's death, and I'm grateful for that. I loved that line. Yeah, I wish there had been more things like that right. to explain to us that Chani's death and the inevitability of it were a driving factor in the way Paul is feeling and in the way Paul is acting in Dune Messiah. Not to mention, by the way, the fact that we are talking about how it combines Dune Messiah with Children of Dune. We mm-hmm. find out in Children of Dune that he sees the Golden Path and rejects it in favor yes. of spending more time with Chani, which is fucking huge that's like huge a massive because it again it is him loving chani having this connection to chani that he's she is his desert spring he would die without her and that's how he feels and that's how he proceeds with his decision making absent from this adaptation he says he loves her clearly he does but you're totally right it's like there's that element that's missing a little bit 
Yeah, totally. And I just think the prescience was almost sidelined in this miniseries. It was like we yeah. definitely nerfed. That's a good word for it. It was a central part of the first miniseries. Yeah. And I think Danny Villeneuve handled it well in the part one movie as well. Here, it's really just in the background, even though so much of the story and so much of Paul's existence and so much of his rule, <laughs> the jihad, everything, mm -hmm. is because of him being trapped as the Oracle. Such a big theme. I think we're missing it in this episode. You're yeah. about to talk about some issues you have with the stone burner up next. Yeah. And I'll say that's another example where I think his prescience is utterly mishandled. Yeah, like, totally. That scene, Paul knows exactly what's about to happen. In the book, he's like walking to Othame's house and hears a couple fighting in a house next door. And he's like, oh yeah, I know what that fight's about. I've heard it a thousand times in my vision. You yeah, know, like yeah. he is just on rails in that whole scene. He knows the stone burner's happening. He is accepting that fate. That scene and that moment in the book is almost like this crossing of the Rubicon. Like there's no going back for Paul after this. He is accepting the rail that he is on. He is choosing to trap himself and all of humanity into one vision. Yeah. And he will play it out exactly as he has seen it. After the stone burner scene, he's basically just doing what the script in his visions tell him to. Right. He is on rails acting out a play that he has seen dozens or hundreds of times in his visions. None of that is in this episode, or at least there's no sense of it in this episode that he is so trapped and that he is doing things because he has to. That was very disappointing to me. Like the prescience was only really used in this first episode as these weird little <laughs> like dream sequences where we see Leto pop up and say things to his dad. Shirtless James McAvoy. Yeah. Yeah. No complaints about shirtless James McAvoy, <laughs> None. but yeah. it was an underutilization of such a core and central part of every Dune book, which yeah. is prescient abilities that these Kwisatz Hatteraks have. It was very nerfed, as you said, in this episode, used basically for these kind of bad dream sequences. And I just wasn't a fan of how the prescient abilities were handled in this episode. And I think it could have been handled much better to hit much more closely on the very important themes and world building surrounding Paul and prescience and inevitability. Yeah, I mean, even in the post Stoneburner scene, when he's using prescience to walk around, it looks more like he's a bat using echolocation. Yes, yeah. Weird representation. Like, then he is following exactly where he knows he's supposed to go. And in Children of Dune, in the book, the preacher talks about how every stone is exactly where it's supposed to be. And like, mm -hmm. every, literally to the degree of everything to the fucking inch is exactly as he saw it. Not yep. this kind of fluttering echolocation looking effect. And I thought it was cool. And as a viewer, I was like, oh, this is neat to watch him like walk around. But it is not him like snatching a radio from someone's hand confidently. Yeah. All right. What about you? What was your first thing that you disliked? Well, let's talk about the stone burner. <laughs> There's a few problems here. So yeah. first I want to point out when Paul exits Othame's house in the book, Bejaz, you know, like, like Stilgar is there. He leaves the yes. house with, with Bejaz. Stilgar is there. We get sense that there's lots of Atreides troops coming in 
And he hands Bejazz off to Stilgar and says, get him the fuck out of here because mm -hmm. he's got important information and shit's about to go down. You and him have to not be here. And they get whisked away, which tells us he knows what's about to happen. He knows how important Bejazz is and he wants Stilgar spared from what's about to happen. Compared to that in this adaptation, he's alone <laughs> in the streets with Bejazz, which is like, okay. I guess everyone cleared out because they know what's about to happen. The the conspiracy is this whole little neighborhood, right? Yeah. And the bomb goes off. And this begs for me two questions. First of all, why wasn't Bejaz blinded? Yes. This bothered me so much. You're going to nerf Paul and also nerf the stone burner? Um, as of um excuse me it's got j waves you piece j waves bitch <laughs> j waves bitch <laughs> how dare you disrespect the j waves yeah trying to drop some j on you and you're just <laughs> dodging it i don't know second of all second question where the fuck because the bomb goes off and then the subsequent scenes are like thousands of people running around yep. rushing around yep. like oh i'm blind and it's like a recovery from this. Where did they come from? Who are these people? Who right. are these people? <laughs> Were they all indoors and now they're out? Like, it, yeah. it was a very impressive bomb explosion. But when Paul's like, none of these men will be sent into the desert. Give them all Tleilaxu eyes if they want them. Yeah. I also, there was like inconsistent pronunciation of Tleilaxu uh, throughout oh, that episode. Drove me nuts. <laughs> like, some people say the L, some don't. Someone's like Tleilaxu. Oh. I was like. Tylaxu? You sound stupid right now. <laughs> Sounds like you're making you making these up, these words up. Again, respect the Tleilaxu. Okay. It's rough because Bejaz is like, don't look at the bomb. Don't mm -hmm. look at it, sir. Mm. So are we to believe that every one of those men was like Paul, was just moth to the flame, like staring into the fire. They're like, ooh, ooh. big bomb. Whoa. Because <laughs> how did they all had direct line of sight on this fucking bomb? Like, either the bomb blinds everyone in a radius, which is what J Waves does. And that's why right. the, the stone burn is such a monstrous fucking thing. Right. Or it doesn't. And you have to be looking at it. And then I simply do not believe that that many people were fucking staring straight into the bomb explosion. And <laughs> honey, not just look, like, honey, look, in the sky. Look, get the kids, everyone, <laughs> get the together. Kids. Get the dog, get the dog. Get the dog, hold the dog. <laughs> <laughs> honey, grab your gerbil, grab your gerbil. Look, get the... A everything with eyes, everything with eyes. <laughs> Can I get them to look? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's a weird choice. So that's the thing. And I'll also point out, so, okay, maybe that's not the case. Maybe it is, like, I don't know. If they're not all looking at it, then why isn't Bejazz blinded? It's like, it's... Yeah, yeah, this bothered me. Choices were made, and I don't super love the choices. I'll also point mm -hmm. out that stone burners, respect on the tech, can punch through the core of a planet. And one of the moments that really I just love is, like, electric for me in Dune Messiah is when Paul is there with all of his men and they're all crouched down and someone goes, is it over? And Paul said, it's burrowing deeper. Wait, stay where you are. Because at that moment, they are waiting to find out if the planet explodes. And like, that's such a scary concept, but yeah. it's part of the moment for Paul where he's like, they really took this far. This 
of course blinds us all that's natural it's a stone burner respect on the name of j waves but also this could have destroyed the planet if they calibrated it incorrectly and right. that is such a gambit and it's and it signals to us as readers what lengths are the conspirators willing to go to that they would risk the only planet that has spice in the galaxy to kill paul yep yep it's wild and that's utterly missing from this it's just a big bomb that yeah. for some reason blinded everyone and their cats and their gerbils <laughs> <laughs> so anyway it just felt very weak it felt very weak in the grand scheme of things i don't know it just feels rough i also like bjaz being whisked away and him not being whisked away here was another to your point it didn't feel like paul was anticipating this because then he like protects bjaz with his body if paul right. knew this was going to happen why didn't he just have someone take bjaz away as yeah. he walks into the blast or whatever in this adaptation it still feels like he was caught a little bit off guard right and then we have paul's eyes the eyes yep the, the eyes. eyes the eyes so paul in the book has like melted scarred blackened pits for eyes and it's described as being very uncomfortable to look at like yeah. his ruined face right i pulled a right. quote this is chani quote she'd found paul sitting beside her his eyeless sockets aimed at some Ugh. formless place beyond the far wall of their bedchamber what the stone burner had done with its peculiar affinity for eye tissue all that ruined flesh had been Ugh. removed injections and ungents had saved the stronger flesh around the sockets end quote just oh. and the idea of like timothy chalamet with this like grizzled blackened it's like it's so cool and dark and metal and badass and ugh. you know it's like this monstrous yeah. it really makes muadib this monstrous thing right versus the sort of relatable eyes are the windows to the soul and muadib has no soul you know it's this great thing yeah. Giving him just black contact lenses. <laughs> he looks like the fucking werewolves from uh, Underworld. Twilight? No, Underworld. No, Underworld. Okay. I don't know if you ever saw the Underworld ones, but it's like vampires versus werewolves. And they okay. all, the werewolves, when they transform, they all have these like black inky eyes. Yeah. And it's very cool. It's like very cool. And you're like, hell yeah. And like one guy turns out to be a werewolf, but he's kind of half werewolf. And it's like very cool. But... Muadib is not supposed to have been made cooler by all of this. Yeah. It's like yeah. his transition from relatable. Is he werewolf? Is Muadib a fucking werewolf? Oh, oh my, my god. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the toy lags who are scribbling, taking notes frantically. <laughs> Reminder for anybody who doesn't get that joke that the there's legend that the toy laxu tried to make a werewolf. Okay. Anyway, deep, deep cut. Wow. <laughs> absurdly <Holy> fucking shit. <laughs> casually referencing single sentences from the Dune Encyclopedia. <laughs> anyway, I will also say that like the scene in the book, he does a lot. He like says, I can see for a blind guy. He's like, there's a wall next to you. Reach out and touch it so that, you know, I can see. And yeah. Stilgar comes and he goes, do not cry, Stilgar. He wipes the tears from his eyes. And then he grabs the radio from the guy out of his hand. And he's like. This is the emperor, you know, blah, blah, blah. All of these little moments that demonstrate how confident he is in this adaptation. He kind of like walks. He kind of like waddles slowly through this. Yeah. like, And it feels very like they were aiming for the religious procession. Like it looks like a religious procession. But I do not get 
that he can see with the confidence of someone who knows his vision is 100% accurate. Agreed. So in any case, I think this was a missed mark overall. And I really wish they did something bolder with the eyes. Because even in subsequent scenes, it's like Chani and him. And he's still handsome Alec Newman and not this like ruined faced, terrible, like, I don't know. That's just, it's it's a missed mark for me. I agree. I will say I would prep for Timothy Chalamet, not also not having ruined eyes and maybe just doing contact lenses because uh, why actors have a brand to keep up. And I don't know that a beautiful actor like Timothy Chalamet is going to agree to having his face just ruined as Paul Atreides in Dune Messiah. Did you see Call Me By Your Name? I haven't seen Call Me By Your Name. Maybe he'll commit. I don't know. I, I, think... I, I haven't seen too much <laughs> Timothy work. I don't want to say what he does to a peach. Okay. But he he does seem, but though, he's pretty... For the folks who know, they know. He's pretty free-flowing with his brand image, I think. But this is the thing. He's so hot and such a good-looking guy. I yeah. think he would be confident to make himself look awful for a, a role versus yeah. some actor who's got, like, image issue, Like, someone who's like, oh, I don't want to be seen as, you know, not attractive. He's always attractive so he's just like yeah give me the fucking shitty makeup like i want to look yeah i hear you i hear you though because also it's like they need to sell this they need to sell him as a product to the the viewers and yeah do they think audiences will be happy to see timothy chalamet for like half the movie (laughs) with like a ruined face (laughs) maybe not and then also yeah so maybe you're right i think you're right that feels like a marketing slash boardroom decision and not a creative i fully believe that denny would be like Timmy, I need you. I need to ruin your eyes for the last half of this movie. Yeah. Are you cool with that? And I, I fully believe Timothy Chalamet would be like anything for the process. Yeah. You know, anything for the film. Totally. But you can imagine someone in the boardroom is like Timothy Chalamet is the lead of this movie. Yeah. You can't make him ugly for the last two hours of it, or, or the last hour and a half of yeah. it, or whatever. In other words, like that's um, like a legendary decision. Like legendary or yeah. WB or whoever is would yeah. would axe that suggestion totally right so who knows i am with you though i would love to see his like gross eye sockets destroyed because i think it's a personification of also a core theme of doom don't be tricked by charismatic leaders don't be you know like paul charismatic leader messiah creates this religion this whole empire and this is almost a personification of the truth is like now he is just as weak as any human he can be just as ugly as any human what I'm trying to say is I'm as beautiful as Timothy Chalamet, and I believe it. I've always believed that, dude. I've always I've, I've maintained that from day one. I did I did like, on that note, I did like there was a viewer who pointed out Timothy, after he kills Jameis in Villeneuve's adaptation, is walking with his hair covering his eyes, and he's yeah. like walking and his hair's down. And right. someone pointed out it's like kind of visually foreshadowing the like blackened eyes. and like The, the blackened the, eyes, the maybe, yeah. The blindness. I was like, that was really cool. Anyway, that's a that's a side note. Yeah. I got some Villeneuve in my John Harris. Anyway, so that was my second pick is this like stone burner mm-hmm. scene and how that kind of, mm-hmm. first of all, disrespected the tech. But second of all, right. I think, again, continues to nerf some key elements of Dune. What about you for your second thing that you didn't like? Okay, so item number two that I didn't like <laughs> uh-huh. is that at no point in this episode yeah. does Paul Atreides admit to killing 61 billion people during his rule, during his jihad. And, you know, you and I are huge fans of this line. We reference it all the time. It is truly such an iconic line. And it's missing from this series. That important context 
is missing from this series. And at one point, I thought they were going to say it. You know, I was like, oh, 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 yeah. it's coming, it's coming. Yeah. They tease it because at one point, Paul turns to Duncan in a scene and says something like, do you know how many people have died in my empire right. or something like that? And I was like, oh, fuck, say the number. Say the number. 61. 61. <laughs> Nothing. We, yeah. we are never given a number. This is completely omitted. And frankly, this is something I can't forgive. Like, this is so critical to Paul and Dune Messiah. Yeah. The 61 billion number is a mind-shattering statistic, right? That's an impossible number to wrap your mind around. The comparisons to Hitler and yeah. Genghis Khan yeah. are brutal yeah. and telling. It's important. Yeah, It is not just like a fun Dune lore thing. It's not just a fun world-building thing. I think this is so critical to Paul Atreides' arc and his story in Dune Messiah. And I'm heartbroken that it was omitted from this series. I think this critique of mine actually expands to the overall treatment of Paul's character in the series too. Like I almost think they tread too lightly with Paul. They don't show us the horrors of his rule. We get that little scene at the beginning where Farouk's yeah. son is blinded during a campaign of the jihad. Yeah. And then we're like told some things in reference to other things, but we, we, we don't see the horrors of his rule. We don't see how honestly unsettling it is that he is a god in this universe. I think yeah. the books do a very good job of making that kind of creepy and weird. There's that amazing scene that's not in this series as well from the book where <laughs> during the meeting, Paul is like, Corba, can you go do the prayer yeah. thing? I don't feel like doing it today. And that's not in this, but that shows us like, how weird is this? That like people worship him and he has to go out and lead a prayer every day. And then of course, just the deaths, just the bloodshed under his rule, the jihad that was so critical to the first book yeah. playing out. Yeah. In between Dune and Dune Messiah and us seeing the results of it in Messiah. None of that is here in the miniseries. He's very much continues to be portrayed as a hero. Yeah. Perhaps a tragic hero, but he's not quite the depressed, disconnected, like space Hitler messiah that he is in the book. Yeah. And I think that's important to show. And totally. I hope Denny does that well. Is we need to see the cost of Paul becoming both a god and an emperor, both on a personal level for him, right? It's deeply tragic for him, yeah. but it's also deeply tragic for 61 billion families <laughs> in the empire. Yeah, yeah. The whole empire has changed. People die. Seismic shifts happen in society and culture. And we really do desperately need to see that. The scale needs to be much bigger. And I hope Denny can pull that off because on one level, Messiah is a very personal tale of Paul Atreides right. and the tragedy of his life. Yeah. On another level, it's a huge commentary on politics and religion and the pitfalls. And like charismatic leaders. Yeah. And charismatic leaders. My takeaway after this episode was dang, I wish Paul was a little more weird. I don't know if that yeah. resonated with you, but I immediately thought of Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen. Yeah. And yeah, how. Yeah. He is so godlike eventually because of his powers that it's just like hard for him to be in touch with his humanity anymore. And we have shades of that in Messiah. We see that in Children of Dune as well, happening to Paul, where the little things, quote unquote, little things don't matter to him anymore. 
because he has seen so much and experienced so much because of his visions. Yeah. You would imagine a person like that becomes a little weirdly disconnected and inhuman. I don't think we got that version of Paul in this adaptation. And that's kind of the version of Paul I really want to see on screen because it's the version of Paul I got from the books. You know those movies? I don't know if you watch a lot of like horror thriller movies, but those movies where it's like the kid is possessed by a demon or something. And like the mm. mom's like cleaning dishes and she turns and the kid's just like full on staring at her. And it's like terrifying and really yeah. unsettling. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Paul needs to be like a faithful adaptation of Dune Messiah needs to give us as viewers the visceral experience of being afraid of Paul and being like, there is something yeah. oh, wrong yeah. with him. And he is something to be feared. Because again, the whole conceit of Dune Messiah was Paul telling Stilgar and telling us as the readers, if you're on my team, you are Germans under Hitler. <laughs> right, right. And we are still, as viewers in, of this miniseries, I came away, I enjoyed this miniseries because I love mm -hmm. Alec Newman and I love him as Paul and I love him mm -hmm. as Paul with Chani and I love, like, I'm just like very team Alec Newman. I did not <laughs> get the, that's a bad thing from this. Yeah. And I think that's a very valid critique because of what Dune Messiah does as a narrative work in order to contextualize totally. our understanding of Paul. I would love to see the like scenes of someone doing something and then being like, am I not alone in this room? And looking up and Paul's there <laughs> and being like, ah, fuck me. Oh, hey, Paul. And him being like, I've seen you startled a million times. Yeah. And it never yeah. gets old. Or, or him like finishing people's sentences for them. Like just w weird little things that show his prescience. And this perhaps goes yeah. along with my other critique earlier about the way his prescience was portrayed. But yeah, just more creepiness around just him being like, I don't know, someone being like, hey, Paul, can you? And he just hands them the thing before they ask, you know, before they finish the sentence. Or maybe even something because that could come off as like maybe like a parlor trick. Maybe something that makes people realize they have no free will. Oh, they're shit. like, should yeah. I do this? And he's like, you don't have a choice. You're going to right. do what you're going to do. And I know what you're going to do and enjoy that thought. And they're just like spiraling. And he walks away yeah. and he says to Stilgar, they always spiral in every timeline. <laughs> like, yeah. or something that like really something, fucking exactly. freaks someone out. Yeah. You don't have yeah. free will. Yeah. There is a horror element. I love that you brought that up. There is a horror element to what Paul becomes yeah. in Messiah. And we need to see that. And I hope Denny doesn't shy away from that. I hope like for the takeaway for me here is in Denny Villeneuve's version of Toon Messiah, I want to see the atrocities of Paul's Jihad. I want to feel those 61 billion lives. And I want to understand the tragedy of his existence, yeah. his prescient abilities, the choices he's made, and you know, explore the core themes that Frank did in his stories. I also think, because we see Leto II in Children of Dune cover himself in worm and be like, I'm no longer human. And that is what Paul had the choice of and he doesn't do it. So the yeah. foreshadowing of I am along the golden path, but I'm aborting from it. I am still somewhat yeah. human, but the truth of the golden path is a departure from humanity in a way that yeah. makes me really scary and unfamiliar to people. Yeah, I agree. So I'm yeah. glad we solved it. I'm glad we solved the Messiah adaptation problem. Villeneuve, we'll be expecting a check in the mail. Yeah, I'll send this as a follow-up email to my last 4,000 emails. <laughs> He'll respond one of maybe, these days. Maybe he'll see this one. He'll respond one of these days. <laughs> All right. What about you? Let's round out our 
dislike section. What's your second dislike from this adaptation? My second dislike is like 14 dislikes and they're all <laughs> they're all really small. So I'll get through them quickly. OK, just a, I called this the petty pile of miscellaneous complaints. Love it. Love it. Registered trademark. Yeah. <laughs> First off, no Bronzo Vicks. I joked uh, about it earlier, but he's spicy. He's iconic. He opens Dune Messiah. I had my my girlfriend recently read Messiah and she said, is the whole book weird like this first chapter and i was like no no it's the first chapter is kind of weird but it's such an iconic moment yep it's great bronzo is lovely i would have loved to have mention of him if someone said oh it's like bronzo said like just as a little tip of the hat to the opening of this book no such thing happened hopefully we've got two more episodes as you said hopefully he comes up the conspirator adjustment i think there is a problem here specifically edric and wallach nine so mm. first the fact that edric was present in the very first conspirator chapter, says, hey, welcome to Dune Messiah. Here are the conspirators. It's Moheim, it's Edric, it's this face dancer from Tleilax. You'll learn more about that later. And it's Irulan. We have someone in the Emperor's party. We have a face dancer from planet Tleilax. We have Edric of the Spacing Guild. We have Moheim, yep. and they're all on the Bene Gesserit Wallach 9 homeworld. Like, it is such an immediate buy-in. It is such a strong signal to the reader. Everyone is against Paul. Every one of the old power structures is teamed up and they're against Paul. And that's yep. so clear from the offset. In this adaptation, it's kind of like there are people against Paul, but it's these two or three plots and they're not necessarily unified and like together. We find out later that yes, the Fremen are not a unified part of that plot, but still... I don't know. The fact that they were hosting those people on Wallach 9 is wild, and we totally miss that. We didn't get to yeah. see Wallach 9. I would have loved to. Yeah. And the fact that we later get conversation from when Sissia says to Moheim, Moheim's like, what about the Spacing Guild? And she says, don't worry about that. And we see when Sissia and Etric talk. And that kind of solves it, but whatever i don't know i didn't dislike this as a viewing experience like as a viewer i wasn't like oh this is bad because i enjoyed the scenes and changes as they mm -hmm. are in the show but i think mm -hmm. it weakened the overall immediate sense of the whole universe is against paul as like a sense yeah. and frank gave us that feeling very very quickly and efficiently in dune messiah and we just didn't get that as much in this adaptation the Leto 2 inconsistency of like prescient blindness, we already talked about briefly. Again, it really seems like Paul's prescience is nerfed, which then is like, is this really that impressive? Is the Kwisatz Haderach really right. the byproduct right. of 10,000 years of breeding and also this like incredible spice heightened awareness and it doesn't seem as superhuman as it is in the book. Like we're seeing visions of Leto 2, which... Yeah, I'm glad that we got Golden Path in this first episode, but there is a core law in Frank's universe that's established and maintained across six books, which is that there are things prescient people cannot see, and I struggle with how that will affect things in the future, basically. Yeah, totally. The next thing, the Tleilaxu eyes. Yeah. Hate, aka Duncan Idaho. Right. He just has like normal ass eyes, got some baby blues. And I was like, this is boring as fuck. We are described smooth metal 
eyes that have no pupils or center of focus. So you don't know where yeah. he's looking. Hard to connect. Eyes in Dune are a huge metaphor. The blue eyes of a bad are a thing, and that affects how people mm -hmm. perceive the universe. And prescience is a type of vision. Like eyes and vision are huge. The Tleilaxu metal eyes, do they make you slaves to the Tleilaxu? These questions don't exist in this adaptation because he's just got normal ass eyes. And yeah. then they left in the line where Alia is talking to him and she's like, what do you see with those eyes? <laughs> and it's like what his normal fucking eyes probably uh, I, I have 2020 vision uh, probably photons <laughs> idiot like what do you mean it doesn't make any goddamn sense cut that line if you're going to give him boring human eyes just cut the line right and also in the stone burner scene paul's reference to Telelaxu eyes and as a viewer who doesn't know about dune you'd be like what the fuck is he talking about so they're going to get normal what eyes? normal eyes <laughs> yeah what's happening yeah. So anyway, that was a Agreed. that was a little complaint. I would have loved to see some some metal eyes, which they could have done. I don't know, whatever. Paul kissing Irulan, another fucking complaint. Yeah. I don't understand. I just legitimately do not understand this moment. If you have a theory out there in listener land, other than literally that <laughs> Alec Newman was like, <laughs> Julie Cox, listen, we're doing it. And again, fucking John Harris is like, what? It's not in the script. What is he doing? Cut. <laughs> this is the seventh take in a row. You've kissed her. <laughs> Alec Newman's like, can't help it. Look at her. She's beautiful. <laughs> Julie Cox is like, no complaints for me. We want to add it to the script. Add it to the script. <laughs> Love making scene too far. Too far. Okay. That was me. That was me going too far. <laughs> so I don't like that moment. It comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I hate it. In Dune, Frank wrote, and this is Paul saying about Irulan, quote, that princess shall have no more of me than my name, no child of mine, nor touch, nor a oh. softness of glance, mm -hmm. no instant of desire, end quote. Wow. So like, that's literally John Harris being like, yeah, yeah. go right. away, words of Frank. And no, that's not that's not it. And I loved yeah. that scene until that moment. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> <laughs> so weird i felt the same and then my final little miscellaneous petty complaint is that paul had a final moment with shani because i love chani and i love paul with chani and i'm glad for chani to have a final moment with paul and also i do like the viscerality of her dying like almost throwing him into blindness right in, yeah. in the adaptation she dies and he collapses against the wall and like, yeah. that's the end of his visions. And that was really like, whoa, that's cool. I feel that. That's great. Right. But there is something so tragic about Paul not being by her side in the book in her final moments, him knowing that she's dying, knowing that this is his last chance to be with his desert spring, but not feeling able to be with her at that time. Right. It's so sad. It's so yeah. tragic and it's just utterly missing from this adaptation because although she has like a weird in her like birthing scene, she has like a uh, like moment and you're like, oh, she's dead. And then he walks into the room and she's like, my Paul. And right. like, oh, she's alive. <laughs> <laughs> she's a zombie. Oh, fuck. You know? <laughs> is this werewolves is it, and zombies? It's werewolves and zombies. <laughs> is this underworld? This is under Are we in underworld? We're in underworld. <laughs> so, yeah, it's the prequel to underworld. Yeah. So I don't know. I... I'm glad because I like Johnny. I'm not glad because I think it makes it weaker. That's a tragic thing. Yeah, anyway, I those the exact same. 
are my petty complaints. <laughs> I agree with all of those. Again, a lot of this script is you taking words right out of my mouth and putting them in text. So I agree with all of the above. Cool. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm not the only one here. <laughs> well, now that we've ribbed on this fucking piece of shit adaptation, I hate it. God, it's so <laughs> terrible. Doesn't that feel gross? Yeah, it feels gross. Let's talk about our favorite scenes. Let's talk about yeah. the scenes that really stood out to us. And here's where you get to have taken the words out of my mouth because you fucking yeah. stole my favorite scene. I stole your you scene. You stole my scene. It's okay. I, had, I didn't have it in the script. You didn't. You couldn't have known. <laughs> Although it is like probably like the one of the best, most impactful scenes in the in the episode. So yeah. please enlighten us. Tell us about your favorite scene. So this was actually kind of a tough pick for me because there are a lot of good scenes, and I bounced around a little bit on my pick. But ultimately, this was the first one I thought of. And I stuck with my gut and I picked the Chani birth montage, the Chani birth scene at the end of the episode, because wow, like after having gone through this ride of an episode in the final moments here, this just gave me chills. It culminated into this beautiful scene that just, oof, I don't know. I was like tingly during this moment. I think the combination of this ethereal otherworldly music and those great vocals combined with seeing <laughs> cuts of the conspirators getting wiped out in one fell one at swoop. a time brutally murdered like, <laughs> brutally murdered yeah moheim our guy corba mid <laughs> mid mid fucking yeah dude fucking wild edric all of it was just so haunting also, and so was good. corba tossed into a death still alive yes alive so he's gonna be baked alive is his baked fremen alive, trial that, that that alia promised yeah. him you'll baked yeah. alive to the point where the water in his body will seep out of him and then he'll dehydrate and yeah. it's a horrible death if you know anything about death still <laughs> crazy <laughs> amazing yeah and then of course all of that horror and death intercut with chani giving birth and dying in the process right yeah. it's an extremely painful and awful birth for her it's just such a good emotional climax for this episode yeah totally everything the past hour and a half of content comes to this moment and it's handled so beautifully and so well i had goosebumps during this moment watching hedrick's container get shattered in slow motion god damn <laughs> very satisfying <laughs> oh my gosh it was so epic it was so satisfying <laughs> I loved it. Chani's birth scene here at the end of the episode knocked it out of the park. 10 out of 10 home run. Totally agree. That was what I was going to (laughs) say. Well, what about you? Since I stole your scene, what was your secondary or backup scene that you went with? I had a couple that I really liked. I wrote in the script, the capturing of the sandworm Mm, because it was something that like, I very easily could have done pretty much any of the scenes in this because I really loved, I really like loved this episode. Yeah, I did too. But the idea of showing smugglers capturing Shai Hulud was pretty fucking cool. Not only because it used in-world tech very effectively to do what I think could be done. It answers the question of like, how the fuck do you capture a sandworm and like get it onto a spaceship? And they answered yeah. that question. They did not have to. He didn't have to solve that problem. <laughs> and he was like... <laughs> no, let's fucking do that. And it didn't have any like real impact. It's probably setting up something in uh, like a scene in Children of Dune. 
but still i'm like that was such an interesting inclusion and it was i just think very very well done but actually after our conversation i'm going to pivot a little bit from the capturing of the sandworm to highlight as well despite the fact that you're right that we did not get a sense a true sense of the horrors of the jihad and how many people died yeah i thought yeah. beginning this adaptation with a focus on the fremen on the front lines losing yeah. lives and losing their eyes and losing you know the horrors of being a fadakin in the jihad yes focusing the episode beginning with that seeing farouk and his son and going Muhatib! as like a curse <laughs> fucking spectacular and again john harrison writing this adaptation again the same way that he made irulan a big part of the first adaptation I think this shows that he is correct. One of the pivotal perspectives of Messiah is the Fremen who believed in Muad'Dib as the Lisan al-Ghaib, as the prophet, as the savior, is no longer the prophet. No longer the savior is now something to be cursed, something to be feared, and something to do, attempt to kill. And yeah. he began the whole fucking episode with those people. And I was like, that's brilliant i love that it's also just like shows an attention to the source material because like literally farouk says to Saitail during their interview my son lost his eyes in the conquest of naraj and it's like right oh look the conquests of naraj and his son losing his eyes that's a sentence from like midway through messiah that gets this whole set and production and soldiers and like this whole scene it was really really cool i really liked that yeah so i think between the capturing of the sandworm and that and then you know 75 percent of the rest of the show right that's number two for me <laughs> great picks great picks all Thank around you. i love it as always i refuse to choose just one favorite scene <laughs> right it snuck in another always <laughs> well that wraps up our conversation today about children of dune part one Indeed by the sci-fi channel on the next episode we'll be continuing this journey and diving into part two of the miniseries it's a three episode miniseries so yep. this is where i believe we will dive fully into children of dune i haven't even seen it yet i'm about to watch it this week yeah so i'm excited to get into that with you if it's anything like this part one i think we're in for a ride absolutely well hey listen everybody as a reminder before we get to episode two, you should watch episode two. Also, let us know what you thought about episode one. If you had follow-ups to what we've said or whatever, gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Hit us up. Let us know. In episodes two or three, if we get any like particularly salient messages, we will share them as part of the sort of like definitely first half of the episode. Obviously, if you're hearing this three months from now, <laughs> if you're part of the public feed, it's already happened. But in mailbags, we're always happy to pick up any poignant things that you share with us. So gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts. Thank you for listening. And yeah, be vigilant. You, you, uh, if you're, you're wrapped in someone's loving embrace, just yep. picture a death still. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help us spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path.